Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brennan will be teaching out of the book of Genesis. The work that God did here in visiting Sarah as he had said and doing for Sarah as he had spoken was not on account of how good Abraham was, how great Abraham was, but it came from the fact that it was an unconditional promise made by God. It wasn't dependent upon Abraham, such as much of what God does for us in His grace and His mercy, mercy, chief of which is salvation, is not dependent upon you. As we considered even this past Sunday, you can't earn it. And so often we find ourselves getting back into this pattern of thinking that we can, of trying to. And when we do that, we, we, we are distorting or misunderstanding God's grace. God did this because He's God. Because He, and He alone is good, because He promised. And so you see, there is blessing, certainly, that comes from obedience. We see elsewhere in Scripture, even covenants that God makes that are, in some cases, conditional. We certainly see in Scripture that obedience brings blessing. We are called to be obedient. This is, in large part, the missionary story of God's people. If you look at the grand narrative of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, we absolutely see in there where there is an aspect of necessary obedience to God. But there are also other ways in which God's blessing is simply because of His promise, because He said He would. And that's the first thing here. Secondly, what we see in these first two verses is that the promise here was fulfilled 25 years after it was made. 25 years. Do we have anybody here who's 25 or younger? Boom. Look at those. You just went up so it's okay. It's okay. I mean, it was your, your entire life. Your entire life to this point. And that's how long. They had been waiting on God to fulfill His promise. Abraham was 75 when God called him from Haran. Called him out of his father's house. And said, I'm going to make of you a great nation. 25 years he's been, as he just said to Abimelech, though I don't think he used this word all the time, but he was obviously a bit ornery, had gotten up on the wrong side of the tent that morning, that he had been wandering aimlessly like a drunkard, stumbling, not even knowing where to go. 25 years! And he falls into sin, but here now God, God fulfills His promise. Right? 25 years. Now here's what you need to understand about me. I am not patient at all. Okay? I'm not patient. I know that I'm not. My wife knows that I'm not. This would be hard. Now, some of you may be thinking, okay, yeah, but Abraham lives for a really long time, so 25 years back then wasn't really you know, that big of a deal. That doesn't really make sense. Furthermore, if you want to go that route, Abraham lives to be 175, okay? So yes, he lives to be older than what we're accustomed to. But let's just go ahead and do the math then, if you want to play that game, okay? So the waiting period for Isaac, for the fulfillment of God's promise, was basically 14% of his life, Okay? If our average lifespan is 75, some of you who are really good with math, you already did it, that's roughly, roughly 10 years. 
Okay? So if you want to put it in our modern day context, that's still a decade. A decade. How many of you have maybe had to, and and I'm sure this may be the case, but have had to wait 10 years for God's fulfillment of a promise? Feels like a long time, doesn't it? Some of you that maybe have have heard God speak something into your life, and maybe it was somewhat recently, maybe you're just a year into this thing and you're thinking, no way, I don't want to wait 10 years. And of course, the younger you are, right? Uh, 10 years feels like forever. For the 10-year-old who gets a gift that they're just really excited about, and they're like, I waited my whole life for this. They might be right, right? For the person who's 60 or 70, and they say 10 years, they may be thinking like, I can wait another 10 years, whatever. Because time just tends to be like, you feel like, man, it's just going by quicker and quicker, right? But here's the thing. It happens at the set time, right? So first of all, we need to understand here, God's promise was not dependent upon Abraham. This particular promise was unconditional. He was doing it because he was God and he made the promise. Secondly, Abraham had to wait 25 years. That's a long time. But nevertheless, sometimes we are called to wait. There is often... A significant delay, we certainly see it in Scripture and we experience it in our own lives, there is often a significant delay between the promise and the fulfillment. And because we are so, and I often say this, maybe it's not entirely true, but it seems like to me, because we are so sort of Americanized in our culture, we want things now, we want it yesterday, we want it fast, we're impatient people. And we can find ourselves in a place of grumbling or concern or feeling like God has left me. He's, he's, dis, he's despaired. But no, sometimes we're called to wait and God is faithful in that waiting. And so that third thing would then be what I mentioned here is that what we need to trust and what we need to know is that what God says He's going to do, He's going to do it, but He's going to do it in His time at the set time. right? As He had said, the Lord did for Sarah as He had spoken. Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the set time. Do you think God was surprised by when this happened? Was he? No. Do you think that for God it had been a long time? No. That's the other thing is our concept of time is so confined to our limited understanding, our limited perspective, right? At the set time, I think it's one thing to get your mind wrapped around patience, right? So this idea of 25 years or a decade, right? If you want to play the percentage game, it's like, okay, okay, I can be patient. I can wait. I'm... But it's another thing. It's one thing to get, to get our minds wrapped around that, but it's another thing, and it's truly a beautiful thing to not just trust Him in the waiting, to not just get to a place where you're going to say, okay, Lord, I'm going to be patient here. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to wait. This is hard, but it's a really beautiful thing when you can get to the place where you say, I'm trusting, I'm waiting, and I know, I know, Lord, that you're going to do it at the perfect time. I'm going to trust you, Lord, to move and to work and to deliver on your promises exactly when you mean to. And I have confidence, Lord, that when you do, it's going to blow my mind because I'm going to look at the circumstances. I'm going to consider the timing. I'm going to say, Lord, that was so much better than if it ever happened on my timeline. Consistently. We have this saying, of course, you know it, hindsight being 2020, right? And truly it is. I mean, it's a really good phrase because so often I'm able to look back and go, Lord, your hand was all over this. You were there, Lord. Every step of the way, you were moving. You were working. You were ordaining circumstances. Shame on me. For then when I look forward to somehow question whether or not you're still doing that. 
Think about this for a moment. Let's look at a few verses together. Let's look first at Proverbs. If you want to write these down, I think these are, I think these are good to, to consider regularly. Proverbs chapter 16. Proverbs 16, verse 9. You may know this one by heart. A man's heart plans his way, but what? The Lord directs his steps. Right? Think about that. The Lord directs your steps. It's one of those verses that I think to some degree gives us, uh, gives us some insight into the balance between man's free will and God's sovereignty in that passage. But what it also causes me to do, and this may sound a little bit more like it's leaning towards the side of God's sovereignty, but there's some times when I find myself thinking, Lord, I have no control. I don't. And how foolish of me to ever think that I do. Lord, you're, on, you're in control, Lord. And so it's a wonderful thing that we talk about obedience when we can just come to Him and say, okay, Lord, I, I surrender then. Here I am. Your way is so much better. Right? Let's look at another passage you may know well. Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die a time to plant, and a time to pluck what is planted, a time to kill, and a time to heal, a time to break down, and a time to build up, a time to weep, and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones, and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to gain, and a time to lose, a time to keep, and a time to throw away, a time to tear, and a time to sow, time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time of war and a time of peace. His time, His ways. Far too often we become too attached to a particular time or season when in reality we need to be willing to say, okay, Lord, it's a, it's a word we often, it's one of those Christian words we use a lot, right? I think Christians more than anybody say, it's a season for this, right? It's a season for that, we do. But it's true. And the more we're willing to go, okay, this is the season that I'm in, Lord, what are you doing with it? Right? Proverbs 27, 1. Jesus references this. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. You can see this also in, or this principle at least in, in James. You can see it in the Sermon on the Mount. Do not boast about tomorrow. Right, as, we, as we make our plans, it's not that we don't think necessarily about tomorrow, but do we boast about it? Or do we have an understanding that, Lord, today is what you've given me, and Lord, I'm going to trust you with it. And then, of course, there's the infamous Jeremiah 29, 11 and 12, though. <clears throat> Jeremiah 29, 11 and 12, for I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope, then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you. We love Jeremiah 29, 11, don't we? Where were they at this time? God's people, the prophet was speaking to, was that? Exile. God was communicating to them in exile. Don't worry, I have a plan for you plan to prosper you, not to harm you, right? And so as we think about these things, as we think about God speaking, God delivering at a set time, at a, 
maybe sometimes far uh, on a timeline far different than what we ever expected, what we ever wanted. But Lord, it was your timeline, and it was good, and it was perfect. And we think, and we look at these various verses in Scripture. That's what helps us to keep it all in perspective. And we considered this several weeks ago, and I've, I've brought it up many times since then. It's just this this regular. Well, here's what we need to be in the practice of of doing, in the practice of, is on a daily basis reminding ourselves of the character of God. Who is He? God is good. He's good. God is all knowing. He's all-powerful. He's all-present. God is faithful. God is provider. God is sustainer. God is self-sustaining. It's not dependent upon me. We consistently remind ourselves of who God is, and when we find ourselves in the period of waiting, we can be confident, Lord, you're moving, you're working, you're not done, you're faithful, your timing is right, your timing is perfect. And we can begin to trust in that. My devotional time... Uh, earlier this week, and I won't share the context of it, but it's definitely impacted me. Psalm 4. David's in a cave, right? David's in a cave because his son is out to get him. Now, his son who's out to get him wants the throne. For a king to take a throne, what does he need to do? Kill the other guy. So David's in a cave. You could say he's fearing for his life, but as he makes his way through the psalm, it becomes apparent that he's not really fearing for his life. But nevertheless, he's, he's in a cave and he's saying, man, my own son's out to get me, right? But he gets to a place where he declares, I will both lie down in peace and sleep for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. He gets to a place where he's able to understand and rejoice in the fact that because, because God, or rather because his, his, his hope and his trust and his joy are not rooted in, in the circumstances of this world, but rather in God and in Him alone, then in the midst of someone seeking His life and Him hiding out in a cave, He's able to say, I'm at peace. Right? And so again, I, it may, maybe I'm overemphasizing it here, but we see here in these two verses such an indication of God's faithfulness and it needs to be a reminder for us today. God is faithful and he's going to do what he said he was going to do and he's going to do it on his timeline and his timeline is perfect. Trust him in that. Verse 3, And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old as God had commanded him. Now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made me laugh and all who hear will laugh with me. She also said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? For I have borne him a son in his old age. So here you have a 90-year-old mom and a 100-year-old dad, and they're saying, this is funny. Right? And it is. You see that happening, you'd be like, Whoa! Wow! That's amazing! Now, this kind of story seems like just that in our day and age. Right? It seems like a story. Why? But because if we look at the, the life expectancy, right, at, 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 of our day and age, we think to ourselves, well, this doesn't happen. How could that possibly happen? But if we look at the life expectancy at that time, we know it was, we know it was different, certainly. But further, it was something that was miraculous, right? It, it's, something that God, it, it's something that God did. And so we look back at this situation and we can find ourselves going, really, did that did it really happen that way? People questioning it. They're like, maybe that's just one of those Sunday school stories. Um, and again, 
you know, we, we look around today and we say, well, I, I, don't, I don't see that happening today. And so many people find it hard to believe. Now, certainly what we need to recognize here is that, listen, God still moves and works today, okay? He accomplishes the miraculous still today. But remember this, as, as people tend to maybe kind of look at this story as, as just that, just a story, and this is something I think we sometimes miss in this, is what he did through Sarah and Abraham was for the express purpose of bringing about his messianic plan of salvation. What do I mean by that? Well, we shouldn't be looking around today to go, well, this isn't happening today. I don't see a bunch of 100-year-old people giving birth, right? No, you don't. Why would you? What purpose does God have in bringing a bunch of people, right? No, he did this at this particular time with a particular purpose, right? Now, what was that purpose? It was salvation. That's what we have to remember is going on in the life of Abraham. The things that were happening here, especially, and we'll consider it here shortly, there's some more stuff here that you might find yourself reading and going, man, I don't know how I feel about this. This is kind of messed up. But God was working. God was doing something specifically. It was a work of grace. It was a work of mercy. And so we must, to this end, be careful in judging Scripture based off of what we simply see happening around us today and a lack in our perspective sometimes of a particular miracle because He's not looking to do that miracle again. It's already been done for its express purpose. Scripture must be judged rather in part based on what God was doing and is still doing in order to accomplish His plans of salvation, okay? So that's what's happening here. What we see happening here is God being faithful, not just to them, but to us. So it says in verse 8, So the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the same day that Isaac was weaned. Now here's the thing. So he was weaned. He's no longer nursing. Now it's funny if you look this up. If you guys want to go and check this out, you can say, well, when was Isaac weaned? And you're going to see a lot of different perspectives on this and different people saying, well, I think this is what happened in this culture at this time. I think he's probably about three years old. Most people think he's probably about three years old. It's funny the people that advocate for he was like five, seven, or even 12. That's just odd, right? <laughs> now Abraham did throw a party, when he was done nursing, so maybe he was like, thank goodness, right? But we think he's probably three years old, okay? And it was part of the custom, why? Because this was a milestone. In Jewish culture, it's all about, you're you're getting older, right? These milestones of of age, uh, you know, we we focus on the year-to-year birthday and not as much in our culture on, like, well, you're coming of age in these different, uh, at these different sort of milestones, So here's this party, verse 9, And Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, scoffing. So what we have here is Ishmael is is, maybe around the age of of about 17. Okay, He's a a teenager, he's a young man. And he's kind of teasing Isaac. He's sort of mocking this whole thing. Why? I think he's jealous, right? I think he's just jealous. I, th- I think uh, I don't see really any other reason. And, and I think to some degree it's okay for us to say, yeah, we get it. Not that it's justified his behavior here, but for Hagar and Ishmael, this has to be a difficult relationship. This has to be a difficult time. I'm not even suggesting that Hagar did, but certainly for many years here, Hagar could have been holding this over Sarah's head. Hey, you, you can't have a kid. I did, right? 
And now all of a sudden this has all changed and this is the son of promise. This, this is the one that God spoke of. This has got to be hard for Ishmael. Now, verse 10, Therefore she, Sarah, said to Abraham, Cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, namely with Isaac. So she's saying, time for them to go. It's time for them to get out of here. And verse 11, And the matter was very displeasing in Abraham's sight because of his son. Abraham's struggling with this, and rightfully so. Now, from Sarah's perspective, however, from a worldly standpoint, I, I, I think we can kind of say we get this, right? Because here, the fact is, and less often, of course, in this sort of polygamist kind of context, in our modern-day culture, if infidelity happens in a marriage and there is a child, now miraculously, uh, because of, of, of what God desires, some couples are able to work through it, but they don't typically then invite the families to just hang out together, right? <laughs> to just dwell together. We don't see that very often, right? No, there's sort of like this idea of, hey, this happened, it shouldn't have happened, and there is a separation of sorts that occurs. So I don't think it should be too hard for us to see here Sarah going, it's time for them to be, to be gone. Nevertheless, to see them cast out as we do here shortly, I think is a hard thing to see. And I've often personally struggled with the idea, and clearly I think this was a difficult thing for Abraham as well. I mean, this was his son. Verse 12, But God said to Abraham, Do not let it be displeasing in your sight because of the lad or because of your bondwoman. Whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her voice. For in Isaac your seed shall be called. So God here says, you need to listen to your wife. Wives, you can say amen, right? God says, you need to listen to her. And he reinforces the fact that in Isaac your seed shall be He's saying, this, this is the one. He's the one. Verse 13, yet I will also make a nation of the son of the bondwoman because he is your seed. And so God here says, he says, you need to listen to your wife. And so remember, this, it was not God's plan for Abraham to have lain with, with Hagar and have an offspring. And so what we are seeing unfold here is the fulfillment of God's plan and His blessing because of His grace. So everything that we've considered there in verses 1 and 2 is true, but now what we start to see is that there are still consequences of sin that have an effect in their life, right? So take it back now to chapter 20 and Abraham falling into this pattern of sin again and we find ourselves sometimes feeling like our, our own selves and maybe I'm beyond God's grace and, and, that, and, and, and that's not true. God is bigger than that and God, God still moves and He still works and His, His mercies are new every morning. But don't kid yourself into thinking somehow that there are no consequences for your sin. No differently than we saw with Abraham and Abimelech is that uh, Scripture tells us your sins will find you out. And there are often consequences of varying degrees. But here's the amazing thing, is that even though now we're beginning to see here the real... Because before it was sort of like, well, hey, they're going to hang around and, and Sarah, we don't have a son yet and I'm not going to cast him out. But now, as we're seeing this kind of unfold we then also see an even greater demonstration of God's grace in that he, though this was not part of the plan, though this is a result of Abraham's sin, 
though this is a consequence of his sin, God says he's, he's still going to bless them and to care for them. But it's not going to be as it was intended to be. And so again, this is a tough situation, but this is the consequence of sin. So verse 14, Abraham rose early in the morning, and he took bread and a skin of water, and putting it on her shoulder, he gave it and the boy to Hagar and sent her away. Then she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. Now this is the part that probably most people, if you're like me, you look at this and you go, really? Like like this is how this is going to go down? Like, okay, I can start to get behind like, yeah, okay, there needs to be some separation here. But Abraham, he's a rich dude. Here's a canteen. God bless you. I mean, that's what it feels like, right? Go, there's the desert. And this is, I, I look at this and I go, man, I, I struggle with this a little bit. Now, a lot of commentators look at this and they say, well, this is a demonstration of Abraham trusting God that God said he would provide for them, that he would make of them a great nation, and so should Abraham give them anything of his that, that maybe he's not truly expressing faith and trust in God to provide? I don't know. I still struggle with that. Um, but maybe, maybe that is truly the case. Maybe that's, a good, uh, maybe that's a good interpretation of that. Now, what I, what, what I do think we see here is, is a couple of things. One, we absolutely see God's faithfulness but what we also see on display here, despite how maybe Abraham should have handled this or shouldn't have handled this, the act of separation here is something that we know from the New Testament that we are given an understanding of what's happening here, of what we are to learn from this. And that, I think, more so than digging in and trying to just get our minds around this, is the more important part, right? So as, as difficult as all this may be for us to fathom, Scripture gives us insight into what is happening here, and it serves as a picture for us, okay? So as as this is happening here, and as Abraham, in obedience to God, is saying, here, it is time for you to go, just as Isaac, the son of promise, is a picture for us and a precursor to Jesus, so the casting out here of Isaac is for us a picture of casting off the flesh. What do I mean by that? Turn to Galatians chapter 4. Paul saw fit to bring this up. In Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 21. Now remember, Paul, in writing to the church in Galatia, is dealing with a church that he's pretty frustrated with. The, the letter to the Galatians is the only letter where Paul doesn't have many pleasantries, doesn't say much about, hey, great to, you know, great to be writing to you guys and excited about all that you're doing. No, he pretty much gets down to business and says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you so quickly? Because these are people who had come to faith in Christ but are quickly turning back to the law, bringing themselves back underneath the law. And he's saying, look, you are justified by faith. It's not by your works. And he begins to address things like there is neither now Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. He's saying, you guys are missing it here. And in a way, in order to give them a picture, and us as well, again, Galatians chapter 4, verse 21, he says, tell me. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise, which things are symbolic. For these are the two covenants, 
the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai. It's, it's the law. It's the place of the receiving of the law in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem, we're dealing with this on Sundays. Jesus, they're addressing the Pharisees and the temple, right? They're focused on the law. Corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, verse 27, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Verse 28, Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. But as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Now again, we look back at this and we can go, man, this is a difficult circumstance. Yes. But make no mistake about it, what we see here, and it's confirmed by Paul, is a picture for us to learn. What we see in Ishmael and Hagar is a work of the flesh. What we see with Isaac, the son of promise, is that that is of the free woman, that is a blessing of God. Right? That is of the Spirit. What are we to do with that? We cast off the flesh. We have nothing to do with it. We put it away. Right? We're children of the free woman. And so this is a wonderful blessing to us. Now again, we look at this and people may go, yeah, but what about, what about Hagar? Well, God does take care of her. God in His grace and His mercy cares for her. We see that. Verse 15, And the water in the skin was used up, and she placed the boy under one of the shrubs. Now this is sad, okay? This is a sad moment. She went and sat down across from him at a distance of about a bow shot, for she said to herself, Let me not see the death of the boy. She is now convinced we're out here in the desert, we're out of water, he's going to die. And I don't want to see it happen. So she sat opposite him and lifted her voice and wept. Now it tells us also here, verse 17, And God heard, not her, but the voice of the lad. So it seems to us that Ishmael also was crying out. And the angel of God called to Hagar out of heaven and said to her, What ails you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad, and hold him with your hand, for I will make him a great nation." God meets her where she's at and reminds her of His promises. And so for those who somehow think that God is unjust, what we have, no, is not an unjust God. Yes, we have Abraham who's made some mistakes and he has to pay for the consequences of his mistakes, but it's not about, a, it's not about an unjust God. It's not about a God who's evil or unfair. No, what we see here is a God who is merciful and gracious, a God who despite man's sinfulness is at work on behalf of His creation. Then verse 19, God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the lad a drink. And so God here in his kindness and his grace and his mercy supplies what they need. So don't let anybody tell you when they say, oh, I don't, you know, I don't, I'm not, I don't know about all that stuff, right? You got these crazy stories in the Old Testament. You got some messed up stuff. This, this woman, she didn't do anything wrong, right? And, and she just gets cast out into the desert. Like, no, that, hey, listen, that's, that's the consequence of Sinful humanity. But God did not remove himself from that situation. He worked and he demonstrated grace and mercy. So God was with the lad, verse 20, and he grew and he dwelt in the wilderness and became an archer. He dwelt in the wilderness of Paran and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. And so we see here then um, 
you know, there's there's now these uh, uh, these <clears throat> ties to the the things of the world, and and we know that Ishmael is the father of the Arab people today, and and uh, so you talk about. Uh, more than even at this time, we certainly have come to see how the consequences of Abraham's sin have in fact been a burden to his own people. Um, even in the world today, the conflict that exists uh, between the Arab nations and that of Israel and, and even throughout the rest of the world. Now does that mean that uh, the Arab nations and, and Muslims in particular are now beyond God's grace? No, not at all. In fact, we're seeing incredible revival happening within many Muslim countries where they're coming to Christ and through amazing circumstances and even visions and dreams. And, and um, so God is, is, is still at work, but the consequences of sin are apparent. Now, here's the beautiful thing. We saw Abraham in chapter 20. He, he, he screws up. He falls back into that same pattern. He blows his witness, but then he's got the opportunity because God says, I'm still with you. He prays for Abimelech, and then he goes, and, and despite Abraham's failures, God is faithful. He fulfills his promise as he said he would, exactly when he said he would in his appointed time. So we see God's grace and his mercy, yet sin, sin is still having its effects, right? And we can kind of feel like, uh, you know, it feels maybe some kind of way about that, but, but the fact is, is God is, is still at work. Look what happens here next, verse uh, 22. And it came to pass at that time that Abimelech, and who knows how to say this name? Fickle? That's what we're going with. Fecal just doesn't sound right, does it? <laughs> I forgot to look that one up. I was like, fecal. That's really unfortunate if I'm pronouncing that right. That poor guy. <laughs> I'm such a kid, aren't I? Yeah. Um, Fichel, where that's what we're calling him. And it came to pass at that time that Abimelech and Fichel... Now, Abimelech, you've heard that name before. Here's the thing. Some people disagree. Some people suggest that Abimelech is more of a generic name for a king in that region. I can't say that I'm, I'm right necessarily, but to me, I, I, I believe that this is the same Abimelech. Uh, the commander of his army, Fichel's the commander of his army, spoke to Abraham saying, God is with you in all that you do. Look at that. Once again, do we need to go back and consider the various ways in which Abraham and it was somewhat of a messed up guy? That he screwed some things up along the way? Now, I'm not dogging on the guy. I think he did a lot. I think he was very faithful in many respects. But we know that he had his issues. And we know also that Abimelech was at one point in time like, dude, what'd you do? Why'd you do this? But now he's coming to him. Here's this opportunity. He's coming for him. He's saying, it is clear God's with you. Praise God for that. Listen, sometimes in our life we can be confident too that, it's, that, that just as God is not uh, dependent on us or, or just that, that some of his promises are not dependent on our works, um, that also, even though we screw up, his grace, his work can still be seen in our lives. Rejoice in that, Christian, that others can see God in your life. And so Abimelech says, it's clear God's with you in all that you do. Now therefore, verse 23, swear to me by God that you will not deal falsely with me, with my offspring or with my posterity, but that according to the kindness that I have done to you, you will do to me and to the land in which you have dwelt. And so here he comes to him basically say, I want to make an agreement with you, a covenant that you're clearly a man of God. God is with you. And, and so I, I want you to agree that you're going you're gonna to be kind towards me. And Abraham said, because remember, he's still at this time d uh, dwelling in Philistine land. In verse 24, and Abraham said, I will swear. So now here's the cool thing that doesn't always happen. 
but sometimes does because of God's goodness towards us is here now is an opportunity, in my opinion, for reconciliation. In verse 25, then Abraham rebuked Abimelech because it now here, <laughs> Abraham's being a little bit bold here, it seems like, uh, that you know Abimelech is kind of like bringing this peace offering, but Abraham's like, well, we've we got some business to deal with though here. So we have kind of this unique interaction here about a well. Abraham rebukes Abimelech because of a well of water which Abimelech's servants had seized. And Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, nor had I heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two of them made a covenant. Perhaps the animals that he was giving them were to cut a covenant similar to what he had experienced with God. And Abraham said, set seven ewe lambs of the flock by themselves. And Abimelech asked Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs which you have set by themselves? And he said, You will take these seven ewe lambs from my hand, that they may be my witness that I have dug this well. Therefore he called that place Beersheba, because the two of them swore an oath there. Thus they made a covenant at Beersheba. So Abimelech rose with Phicol, the commander of his army, and they returned to the land of the Philistines. Then Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and there called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines many days. So we have kind of this unique encounter here at the end of this uh, chapter. Of course, as we come into chapter 22 next week, we're going to see you know, what is arguably the greatest display of faith on the part of Abraham, a story that many of you are familiar with. Uh, but here at this place, I think uh, as we bring this to a close, we have the opportunity, if I can summarize here, to see a pattern once again that not only do we see a pattern in Abraham's life of sin that we can relate to on our own, but we also, because of that, if we allow God to work, can see another pattern at work, at play. As we see with Abraham, sin. A pattern of sin, once again, that leads to a blown witness. That leads then also to God's grace with, yes, some consequences of sin, which God's grace covers once again, which then, because of God's grace, brings restoration, which then leads Abraham to worship, right? This should be the pattern of the believer. Hopefully our patterns of sin and our tendency and our bend towards sin are reduced. Sanctification has its work in our lives. But as we look at Abraham, we see this incredible pattern. And again, it ends with worship. It ends, and this is why, you know, it, it goes from here, Abraham worshiping God, experiencing this and worshiping God, then into chapter 22, a great demonstration of faith as God calls him and says, your, your son, your one and only son, I want you to offer him to me. And he's able to move forward and do that. And so, yes, as flawed of a man as he was over time, we see him grow closer and closer to God. We see him experience God's grace. And we then see his obedience, we see his faith. And that's what then, that's what the New Testament tells us about Abraham. It's about his faith. Why did he have such faith? Because he was a man who experienced much as it pertained to God's timing, God's work in his life, God's forgiveness, God's grace, God's mercy. And so as we experience some of those things in our lives as well, we need to find ourselves going, okay, Lord, I, I see what you've done here. And we give him thanks and we worship him when we allow him because of those things to grow our faith. And that's truly the God that we serve. I'll close, on, uh, I'll close on these two things. Psalm 51. We know this psalm. This is, this is David's prayer of repentance. 
when we think about Abraham, I don't know what he, I don't know anything that he he said here, but but I know that he saw fit at this particular place to once again, no differently than when he came out of Egypt, after he had kind of stumbled and experienced some things that that uh, he came to a place where he worshipped the Lord again. Now his time uh, where he he made this mistake with Abimelech, a, a good bit of time has passed here, a few years have passed, but uh, he still finds himself at a place where he's worshiping God and. And you know, for us, as we reflect on these things, we need to find ourselves in a place like David where we just cry out, Lord, have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitudes of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. I acknowledge my transgressions. My sin is, is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak, blameless when you judge. You know, David continues to speak of just how, uh, how wretched he is and, and cries out to God to purge him, that he shall be clean, that he would be washed, shall be whiter than snow. Verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast, steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. He's crying out to God here. Restore me the joy of my salvation. Uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your way, and sinners shall be converted to you. The sacrifices, verse 17, of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. And so it's that prayer of repentance that leads to forgiveness and leads to reconciliation. And in 2 Corinthians, in chapter 5, in verses 18 through 21, we have the declaration there from the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth that we serve a God of reconciliation. Right? That's what he does. And we see this pattern play out in Abraham's life, and we experience it, hopefully, in our own lives as well. And so what he's accomplishing here through Abraham is a part of his plan that is still at work today. It's his plan of salvation that will culminate in his glorious second coming and the ushering in of a millennial reign and a new heaven and a new earth, right? And so there's much, much for us to still look forward to, even though we have these patterns in our lives, even though we have these experiences in our lives, God is good, amen? He's a God who reconciles, he's a God who restores, he's a God who forgives, God who's gracious and merciful. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for our time together here this evening, Lord. We rejoice in you and in your word, and we thank you for the encouragement that it is to us, Lord, and the wonderful reminder throughout Scripture, once again, Lord, of individuals who failed, Lord, individuals who sinned. And Lord, their sin does not justify our own, but Lord, it shows us that you are gracious, and we thank you for that. Lord, help us, Lord, to reject, take captive, Lord, those things that come into our mind, Lord, when the enemy seeks to whisper into our ears the lies about us being beyond your grace, beyond your mercy, Lord, no longer able to be used by you. Lord, yes, may we take our sins seriously. May we confess it to you, Lord, but may we also trust and know that you'll forgive us and that you're not done with us. Rather, Lord, that you are a God of forgiveness, a God of reconciliation, a God of restoration. That pattern we've seen from the beginning of time, Lord, is still at work today. And so, Lord, we rejoice in that, we praise you for that, and we look forward, Lord, to the, the complete work, Lord, um, that is uh, still before us, uh, when we'll enjoy time in your presence forevermore. Lord, we love you, we praise you, and I pray for each of these here, Lord, as they follow after you. Uh, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you would like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.